Okay, hi. Uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome. Some of you started the Masters. Some stragglers from the department have wandered in to see what, how you might contribute to EBM. For those of you, I know most of you, my name's Carl Hennigan. I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine and Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, and I'm also a GP. Um, this talk, basically, I figured for those in the Masters, it applies to everybody, is evidence-based medicine is often seen to people like something that's really difficult to get involved in and actually, actually can be quite scary. So after a busy day in the Masters, this is a talk about sort of some of the things I've learned over the last 20 years that have really profoundly influenced me in the way I think and how I go about my contribution to evidence-based practice. And some of you might start to think about how you may contribute. So I'm just going to ramble around from 50 years worth and feel free to interject, stop me at any time. If you don't quite understand what I'm saying or you want to stop and maybe at the end we'll have a little discussion about how you might contribute. So I think this is an important photo and this is an important landmark in how we think because thalidomide was a really important issue in terms of regulation and this is John F. Kev Kennedy giving the gold medal or bronze medal at the time to Francis Kelsey. Because in America, what they said is, we're not going to allow you to have thalidomide unless it's in the context of a clinical trial. Um, and that was not for the pregnancy issue, that was because of the neuropathy problems. That meant you were about 100 times more likely to have a child with thalidomide in the UK than America, despite the fact they outnumber us six to one in population. And at the time what happened is drugs were just basically brought about on the market, released on the market, and people then said, let's see what they do. And with this drug, they got spontaneous reports that actually it's really good in nausea. And then said, ah, well, there's a really good group, do come to the front, there's a really interesting group of people that this could apply to, and it's pregnant women. And uh, at the time, John F. Kennedy said, I'm going to put £2 million into the US FDA so that this problem would never occur again. So that really is the birth of regulation around about the 50s. Today, you've you touched on this today. It's a really important, interesting arena that you touch about the idea of antiarrhythmics. And that's a real problem. And it was a birth of, in the 80s, of evidence-based practice, if you like. This was an arena and area where people were pretty clear about clinical practice and then along came this clinical trial and really turned over what we think we thought and often um, you should read stuff you've got to read if you're going to be influenced and think about the bigger wider issue and this is a great book actually uh, Thomas More why tens of thousands of heart patients died in America's worst drug disaster I would like to make my job participatory as well who feels good about reading Feel good about reading? Can you read? Okay. Good. We get the brightest students in Oxford, you see. Just read out nice and loud and clear and slow and just read the first sort of ten lines for everybody. This book tells the story of America's worst medical drug disaster. Over just a few years, an estimated 50,000 people died from taking drugs intended to prevent cardiac arrest. After hundreds of thousands of patients routinely took these drugs, a definitive medical experiment proved that they did not prevent cardiac arrest, as doctors had believed. Instead, the drugs caused cardiac arrest. Often the effect was so sudden and unexpected that people literally dropped dead while going about their normal lives. 
The result of this single medical misjudgment about the properties of these drugs produced a death toll larger than the United States combat losses in wars such as Korea and Vietnam. Okay, thanks. Quite interesting that, isn't it? Quite powerful when, when you think about what's really going on. The capacity of medicine to do benefit but great harm and that we always start in equipoise is really interesting. So, superb. Evidence-based practice is born, all disappear, all the problems disappear. Around about just early, late 1999, 2000, I become a house officer. In fact, at the back there is Jeffrey Aronson, who now works in the department, who was my consultant at the time. And I thought, oh, yeah, we practiced, it's all disappeared. But I want you to talk, go forward to about 2000. And I'm going to talk to you about a particular drug in a minute. But this is where the birth of evidence-based practice comes from is the integration of best research evidence with clinical expertise and patient values. Trying to bring evidence to decisions, which seems like, any time I ever speak to anybody who's not in healthcare, they say, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Everything should be based on evidence. Why do we need a professor of evidence-based medicine? Surely you're out of a job. You're redundant. And actually, it seems nonsensical to patients and the public that medicine would be practiced without evidence. Yet it continues to be, and continues to be in all sorts of ways influenced by a lack of evidence. But I want you to take you forward to 2000. So I'm a house officer. I work in a team called Firm C. And there's a particular drug called Vioxx, a COX-2 inhibitor that is being marketed as a pain reduction medication that's advantageous over current non-steroidals because of its lack of gastric uh, adverse events. And it is widely being used by people who I'm around because there are lunches going on, there are people being taken out to dinners, and I reckon about 1,000 people within our care within a two-year period were put on this medication. So I want you to hold 1,000 people. Me, Jeff, and the team, would you say about 1,000 people? It could be. Say, say we take 1,000. Now, what's interesting when you come to this Vioxx, this is actually, again, really shocking is um, results from the clinical trial in 2000 show five times the number of heart attacks amongst patients taking Vioxx compared with those taking naproxen. Merck says the reason was naproxen's strong protective effect on the heart. So they argued that away. 2001, the company's internal intention to treat analysis, which you're all going to start to learn about, that means the people, everybody, not the ones just on the drug if you dropped out, identified a significant increase in total mortality. Nearly five times, four and a half times. Okay, in one study, and the second study was 2.55, so nearly two and a half times more likely. Overall, that meant there were more, 34 deaths abound amongst 1,069, compared to 12 deaths among the placebo. So if you round that to about 1,000, that's around about 20 patients give or take a few. Do you see what we were doing? Anybody see the significance of us putting a thousand people on average on this treatment? We're actually assigning people on the intervention to increase mortality, thinking we're doing the right thing. Carl, actually what happened in the John Reynolds was that John Reynolds, who was chair, said we should not have this drug on the hospital formula in 2000. Yeah. So all the people we saw we're getting it outside and we're coming in to the hospital. Yeah, huge pressure at that time. Pharmacy reps would go to, to straight to general practice, talk to people about this. And that's an incredible, just hold that point what Jeff said. 
Let's think about that as a signal. 2001, they told them there was no increasing risk of death where they knew it was three times. The FDA said, could you just send a letter to everybody saying, oh, it's, it's a bit unsafe, think about it. Now, when you go to, um, when you look at evidence, generally, is you don't need statisticians to interpret what's going on, to be honest. When you look at a graph like this, and you look at this is a cumulative death rate, and say that's the intervention in the placebo, you don't need to be a statistician to work out what's going on, do you? You can see there's an increased mortality. Yet what happened with this is that this was systematically withheld from clinicians for around about three years. And it only became in 2003-04 apparent that this three times mortality effect was happening. And they consistently withheld evidence. And what was interesting at the time is this is um, from Catherine DeAngelis, who was editor of one of the big journals at the time. This is her... And, and this is her quote, this has occurred because physicians have allowed it to happen and it's time to stop. And that's because sometimes clinicians and everybody's complicit in not using evidence-based medicine principles. And what Jeff said to you is John Reynolds, who is a very smart physician, looked at the evidence and said, there's a problem here. We should follow the evidence base. As opposed to not using the evidence and saying, well, there are all these pressures, all these guidelines, all these commercial interests telling you to do something. And that's very profound to me in my thinking to say, gosh, you can really get it wrong very rapidly if you're not careful. And then we come to the steps of EBM, which is about critical appraisal, validity, and thinking about these issues about applicability. And then this morning you saw this particular trial, which is rosiglitazone, the DREAM trial. Great name, isn't it? The DREAM trial. The Lancet. One of two journals in the world that have a profound impact on medications in practice, surgical interventions in practice. Them two journals really do have a monopoly on these types of studies. But what's interesting is when you do read this and you read the bottom two lines, and I can take people who've never practiced before, know nothing about evidence-based medicine, and I get them to read. And at the bottom they read this, cardiovascular event rates were much the same in both groups, although 14.5% participants in the rosiglitazone group and 2.1% in the placebo group developed heart failure. Well, when you think about that, that is nonsense. Even as a GP, I know the heart is part of the cardiovascular system. And even my kids can tell you that from GCSB biology. So that statement can't be right. And if you look at what it's saying is, it's saying it's five times more likely, five to one, simple math, and... The p-value is 0.01. So 99 times out of 100, this is the effect you get, and one time in 100, this could be by chance alone. You're likely, if you expect, so if you just think about it, you repeat this experiment 100 times, you're going to get this effect 99 times out of 100. That's not rocket time. When I said this, I went, oh my God. So when you see signals, you should start to be, take them seriously. And that's been profound in the way we think. And when I wrote this, I wrote this to the Lancet, and they said, well, we're not going to publish that editorial. We don't want an editorial from you, Hennigan. So I rang up Fiona Godley and said, this is a disgrace. And we published that immediately that the study came out. The number needed to harm at three years is 250. So for every 250 patients you put on this, you're going to have one case of heart failure. And this is in really low-risk people. This is not in high-risk people. So you say, oh, that's pretty low. But think about it. This was a $3 billion drug at the time. It's in hundreds of thousands. We're back to the Cox 2 argument. We're back to the anti-arrhythmic story again.
And what's interesting is when you look at the timeline and go back and look in the regulatory timeline about rosiglitazone, you can take it back. It was approved by the FDA in May 1999 and they asked for a doctor as a phase four trial. It was 2000 by the European Commission record as a phase four. So they wanted some further trials. They said, we'd like, they had all this signal document on violated under cardiac disease. Signals start to appear here. Sponsor forms working group on analysis of CV events, 2004. Summary of first meta-analysis. Meta-analysis by Steve Nissen in 2000 says there's a 43% increased risk, again, of heart problems in this group. And here, 2010, you go down, box one in here, FDA give a box one, and again, 2010, suspend sales. And again, if you start to dig around the information, you find this is in the original 1999 <coughs> medical review. The increase in body weight and undesirable effects on serum lipids is a cause for concern. Heart disease is a major cause of morbidity and mortality. It cannot be assumed that rosiglitazone will decrease the CVD risk. My concern about a deleterious long-term effect on the heart should be addressed. That was 11 years before it withdrew off the market. It was the biggest selling diabetes drug around about 2006. So very interesting, again, about this idea that treatments have benefits and harms. And out there is lots of information around treatments. And your job in evidence-based practice is, if you're smart enough, is we'll get there in the end, but you'll get there about four or five years before anybody else. Because like what Jeff said about Joan Reynolds, is you go, hey, I don't understand this. And it's the same for benefit and for harms. It works both ways. People who are doing stuff beneficial get there earlier. They stop doing the harmful. I'll move on again then. So that's just some interesting. And, and, and this is probably, again really been quite injured. This is Margaret Chan in 2009. You all remember the swine flu pandemic? Anybody have swine flu? Yeah, I caught it when I came to my first class here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still alive to tell the tale. The, the definition of a pandemic which was changed for this means it should cause serious, an epidemiological uh, infection that has widespread and causes serious morbidity. The definition was changed to suit swine flu at the time. And at the time, this is my girls from 2009, they're a bit bigger now and tell me to shut up, Dad, and go away because they're teenagers now. But at the time, they used to listen to me then. Um, the question is not, this was my girls. And what happened is my sister also rang me. She said, I, I just rang up the doctors. We've got a fever. And they said, you need to go to Northampton to pick up a prescription of Tamiflu. And she said, what do I do, Carl? And I thought, hmm, I've no idea at this time. Looked at a systematic review that I thought had been done in adults. I thought, oh, this is not that interesting. So what we did is we'd been involved with a group who'd been doing the Cochrane review. We said, well, let's prioritise doing the systematic review in children. And that's exactly what we did. Um, and that was the major headlines that came out of the researches. I was astonished that um, the lack of evidence base. Four trials in the world for children Less than 1,500 children have been in randomised trials for this treatment, despite the fact influenza is hundreds of thousands, millions of people infected at any one time. You could do this trial in a week or two. Um, and what, what it showed was um, that basically it has a small reduction in symptoms, no effect on complications, and it makes children have diarrhoea and vomit. About 1 in 20 children have serious vomiting and diarrhoea with it. And I was a bit shocked and we published that with major national news, it was all over the TV and it had no impact whatsoever on the prescribing of Tamiflu in terms of guidelines, policy. 
In terms of GPs, I started to get messages from individual clinicians going, yeah, this is really good. We think you're right, and this is what we don't want to be pressured into prescribing this. But there's been an interesting change in how the world is now pushing us with technologies. And if you think drugs, devices, surgical, they're all technologies. And why has this, why has this come about in effect? Why do we slightly think differently? And I think there's been a profound change in about the last 10 years around the business of medicine. And this is 2005, um, and this is an article in The Independent about good old Donald Rumsfeld. What was it? No, there's no known knowns or unknown unknowns, but he, made, he was actually one of the shareholders in Gelade who had the license for the drug. That's why he made a lot of money. But one of the things is he asked for a UN report on how many predicted deaths would bird flu. Remember bird flu? That's before swine flu? Cause. So if I asked you worldwide, how many predicted deaths would you think in this model that the UN had put together, the worldwide number of deaths were to be predicted at that point. Anybody like to hazard a guess? You can phone a friend. 10, 100, 1,000? 10,000? You're going to go for 10,000. You're going to go for 10,000. What about this side? How many predicted deaths? They looked at it, they said, bird flu, it's got a few cases, there have been about 900 deaths so far. You've got 10. Hmm? You're going to go for 100,000. So it was 150 million deaths is what the UN predicted. And the number of deaths was 700,000 that might be expected in the UK alone. That's when we bought our first order of 14.6 million courses of this drug. Started stockpiling the drug because we got particularly worried. Oh, despite the fact there'd only been 90 deaths so far. So there's a real commercial operation around some of these pushing you into it. And I could show you, they're really interested. In 2005, the marketing material said, flu is a disease that everybody stays at home. We're going to make you all see your doctor. And when you see your doctor, what happens? You're going to get intervened. In fact, you're going to spread it more quickly. And we're going to intervene with medications. And that's what the marketing material says. But I particularly like this sheet. This is the way you get in 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 problematic thinking because of the way the news media now comes to the public and you. And this is Hans Rosling, who, if you go on TED, has done some remarkably good talks, but I nicked this off Hans Rosling. It's called the news to death ratio. And so you can look at the number of deaths in the first 13 days from 24th of April, when we first learned about swine flu, to the 6th of May 2009. And you can compare that to TB. And you might want to think about that 13 days in terms of now what's happening in Ebola, and think about it in context of TB. You could do the same for Ebola, in fact. The number of deaths in that first 13 days was 31 for swine flu. In the same period, the number of deaths for TB is 63,066. The number of news articles was 254,442 for swine flu, and 6,501 for TB. That means if you see one, new, you have to see 8,176 news articles for one death when it comes to flu. However, if you see one article on TB, 10 people have died. When was the last time you ever thought to myself, oh my gosh, people are really talking about TB as though it's an important issue. We should really be solving this. So this is almost what we always see is the inverse care law, which is if you want to read something interesting going back is inverse care law was a chap called Tudor Hart 
who said healthcare is often disproportionate to the needs of the patients. And he was a in a mining village in, in Wales, in South Wales, and he said, look at all these people with chronic airways disease, high blood pressure, they get zero care, and all the healthy people get all the attention and the care. And it's really interesting if you look at that. It's not sexy TV, is it? <coughs> Seems to be in less deprived populations, lower socioeconomic classes. People are not interested in it. But boy, there's a big problem globally. And if you think of that number, 63,000 in, in 13 days, e Ebola is really startlingly, with that 4,000 since about Christmas. Important, yes. But nobody is worried about this. So, um, and, and what happened is, um, I was so amazed at the lack of evidence. I, I managed to meet with a chap called Tom Jefferson, and this is Deborah Cohen, who we do a lot of work with, and Jeff knows Deborah Cohen. I said, look, in the adults, what's going on here in the adults? And he said, well, we think there's something a bit dodgy here, um, and we're not happy. And let me just move in. This is a whole group of us who ended up meeting, and this is in Oxford. There's Tom Jefferson there. There's a few other people, Peter Doshi and Chris Delmar from Australia, a few other people. But we ended up combining our um, efforts together. Because a Japanese chap had sent an email to the Cochrane, and if you send an email to Cochrane Reviews, to the authors, you have to respond within six months. And I we could go off into that, but he said, of the ten trials you, did in, you published in the adults and used in your Cochrane Review, if you actually look at it, only eight, only two of them, sorry, have ever been published. The other eight were included in a meta-analysis by a pharmaceutical employee who was... Um, not actually employed, but was actually paid for, where the doctor had been had his lab paid for, had included that data, but it never got published. And he said, the unpublished data has a far more greater effect than the published. And it could go. Um, and startling, and I just thought, well, that's quite interesting. But this is what, when Tom first said to me, um, we got our first ever clinical study report, which is the stuff that's not published. The most two-sided, so these are the two-sided trials, Nicholson 2000 and Trenner 2000, the only two published ones, say did not mention any serious adverse events or stated there were no drug-related serious adverse events. And these findings were repeated by bodies such as the UK NHS. No serious events were noted in the major trials and no significant changes were noted in laboratory parameters. However, the first clinical study report we got, which is of that study, describes 10 serious adverse events Nine, in nine participants in the two trials. Now, if it, when I say and everything I know, when you see that, I cannot reconcile what's going on here with this. Now, we have the clinical study reports. Clinical study reports go into thousands of pages, and they detail all the adverse events, the serious adverse events, serious unexpected serious Suzar's adverse reactions, and that's what it said. And at that point, I was shocked, to be honest about this. Again, I'm in a position where we go back to 2000, all the other aspects. Um, and then it emerged that 60% of patient data from randomized trials had never been published, including the largest ever treatment trial undertaken with just over 1400 people of all ages. We've now already spent 450 million pounds on this in the UK. And this is the situation of what we spent. Um, let me just, and it's interesting, these things don't go away. We make a complete nuisance of myself, and the team do still. We've just published in The Lancet today a letter, opinion letter, 
because the Lancet, the people who are all funded by the drug industry, have said, actually, all the observational say to say that this treatment is fantastic. And you should all study this starting to say, well, if you're basing treatment effects on observational data, you start to get worried. It's on the WHO essential medicines list on the basis of three observational trials that show a 70% reduction in mortality. But when you think about it, well people get Tamiflu, unwell people, I will send you to a hospital without the Tamiflu. That's what happens. If you're really unwell, I'm going to send you in and we're going to treat you appropriately. And on Monday, next Monday, um, I met the Houses of Parliament on Monday at the Public Accounts Committee because they're really pissed off. Because they're saying we've spent over £500 million on this treatment. And if you look at what's happening, I cannot meet a GP yet who says, I prescribe this readily, and we stockpiling it, and I'm not quite sure where. Why? And we still spent another £50 million a couple of months ago, because we're in a bounding contract, and then everybody says there's no money in healthcare. Can't quite understand and reconcile that. But again, if you're prepared to use the evidence, the evidence allows you to look and dig and think. You need to have all the evidence around the benefits and harms. I'm just going to finish then about what, and then I talk about things that we may do differently. This is some stuff... You know, evidence-based practice, if you're prepared to be a bit of a nerd, it's amazing where you can go. And this is about five years ago. I got backed into a corner and said, we think there's a major problem with metal-on-metal metal hips. And this is people at Channel 4 with Deborah Cohen at the BMJ. But we've got this evidence, and we can't really find any orthopedic surgeons who are willing to look at it and give us a, a, a sort of impartial viewpoint. And I looked at it, and I said, again, it was a bit like the Vioxx. If you looked at ceramic hips, the failure rate was about 3% at 10 years. Superb operation, had some problems, leg could dislocate, you put people on the bed, they get better and they go back to work. But there were a few issues with it, but not amazing. Metal hips came along and people said you can get back to work quicker, you can have a better range of movement, and it doesn't dislocate. And by about five years, the failure rate's 15, 20%. I'm like, you don't need many statisticians here to know we're in a really bad way. And it turns out, in devices, it's like the Wild West compared to drugs. Because often, a device can get on the market, and we looked at it, we did this, looked at all the medical data. I was shocked to learn about how devices are regulated, even in terms of implantable devices, <coughs> that you can get away with just equivalence. My device is similar to somebody else's on the market. I don't need a clinical trial. That's okay. You'll get CE marking and US FDA marking on what's called a 510K license. Well, I'm just alluding to that is um, I've ended up as a world expert in device regulation almost by default on the basis I don't think anybody else reads this stuff or cares and if you go and read this stuff and say I'm really interested in it you'll be amazed at what goes on in devices I can tell you it's unbelievable but actually understanding the evidence that's required to get drugs or devices onto the market puts you in a space where actually you can be really influential in terms of thinking and how you might contribute to how health goes forward. So um, that's a bit about some of the profound ideas and issues that have impacted on me. And I went to the HDA who, who fund all of our research in January. And what they wanted to know is what should we think about differently? And so um, I put these ideas, seven ideas to them that I said, this is what's going wrong or what we might do differently. I think there is a constant need to reevaluate interventions that are already on the market. 
And here's a classic example, aspirin for everyone older than 50. This is a, um, an editorial in the BMJ in 2005. Everybody at 50, it was going to be like Smarties, would be on aspirin. By 2009, we're actually saying, oh, this is a bad idea, actually. And when you look at it and think it, by 2009, actually, the benefits of aspirin in primary prevention are outweighed by the harms. So by four years later, we're like, no, this is a... And when you look at aspirin, it's really interesting. If you go back to here, about 1758, if you go up to Chippy Norton up the road, you can make a, the Reverend Stone, who published here, is the account of the success of the bark of the willow. And he was a fellow at uh, Worcester, at Wadham, actually. He was a fellow at Wadham. But when you look at this, it takes until 1974 for the first randomised trial of aspirin and MI reported. That means only 40 years ago, it seems ridiculous that only 40 years ago, actually people didn't really have trial evidence to support aspirin and MI. So most of what we know is really young and early. Lots of pathophysiology is, is hundreds of years old, and our basic sciences teaching pathology and physiology are coming from two, three hundreds. But we're coming from a period where actually the evidence base is not that amazing. And if you look here, 1996, the FDA approves it for suspected MI. That's not that long ago. And, and I put this slide up. You'll see this slide maybe. People talk about this idea that cumulative meta-analysis. Here's a meta-analysis, and this is thrombolysis trial, and there's the overall effect favour treatment. And what they do, and I've done this for about 10 years, and then I thought, can't be right, this. They go about here and they say, well, everybody could have stopped doing the evidence here, and it should have been implementing. And that's correct, in a way. But actually, what's going on here? What are all these trials doing? Right up to 1988. They are confirming the finding in lots of different populations, generalising the results, they're consistent. What happens now is thrombolysis has become widespread and it's not something that people go, hmm, not quite sure about the evidence. What happens today is much of the evidence stops around about here and then we move into all sorts of other areas called knowledge translation, implementation science. But actually the problem is we're uncertain. Now when I went to the HDA, they said we don't, we don't fund confirmatory trials. And I said that's why there's no other trial of Tamiflu outside of the manufacturers. Because nobody said, let's just confirm these results in a different population. It's sensible. As opposed to spending 550 million, I said to him, you could have spent, in the telephone line, 5,000 people received the treatment in the first week, you could have randomised them, done the trial within 28 days, and it would cost you about 500,000 pounds. As opposed to 5 million. Not interested. Number two. Insufficient evidence exists around most current interventions to determine if they are effective, which follows on from one. And this is a classic example, and we've been discussing this today. I am amazed that in primary care, around about 3 million people are on antidepressants. And I'm even more amazed when you look at the amount of evidence that informs that decision. This is at, in primary care, the systematic review, 14 studies, of which 10 examined TCAs, 2 SSRIs, but forget that. The number of participants, again, is only 1,364 in the intervention and 919 in the placebo, and they're typically of six to eight weeks. The discussion I was having with Kamal today said, well, how come the guidelines or the guidance is you've got to stay on the treatment for 18 months before you come off it, if that's what the evidence says? No dose information, and the authors were unable to comment on the appropriate duration of treatment. 
So it's a bit like the Wild West, but we've ended up with three million people on these treatments, and we can't get them off. I think that's very thought-provoking. Third is, this is actually now becoming a big problem for us. Um, it's very difficult, it's becoming very expensive to develop the evidence base. It's almost like, and I'll come to the old trials, is the front-end regulation is so great that it takes about a year just to get off the ground. And these trials now run, we're just putting, it's like 2.5 million, and you're like, geez, we need more money just to get going. It's, uh, yet, if I came tomorrow and I said, mm, I want to do a new intervention in pharmacy, and we've discussed this, for anticoagulation, want to do some educational. Well, the, the commissioners can give it to one pharmacist, they can give it to every, they can give it to half, they can give it to a third. But if they decide to randomise, you've then inflated the cost by half a million pounds. So I think this is a real issue that has to be, and there's a new thing called the HRA, the Health Research Authority, that's trying to improve how we do clinical trials. Four, um, this came up recently in a, in a Twitter debate and got picked up. Most interventions don't apply to the people we see in practice. And this was something I did with uh, Jamie Oliver's TV. They said, production, they said, the men who made us uh, thin, not the men who made us fat, the men who made us thin. Did this and he said, well, look, this evidence, they all say this evidence for Weight Watchers works. And I said, well, it does work, but it doesn't work to anybody we see in practice. So if you take the evidence, and this is based on the trial evidence, you can look up the evidence here. If you take 1,000 people and invite them, 885 won't come. So that's 80. 8% of your population are not interested in the intervention. So this is the public health, it's supposed to solve the problem. Of the 115 who do come take up the intervention, six won't attend the first class and 53 do not attend all the classes. However, of the 62 attend all the classes, they'll lose about 5.4 kilos at the end of them classes. If you follow them up at two years, you're down to 13 people who maintain the goal weight, sorry, and by five years that's about 10, of which nine are women and one's a man, maintain their goal weight. So you started out with an intervention for 1,000 people and you managed to get to 10 people. Superb. It's fantastic public health intervention, is it, do you think? It's actually useless. It's useless if we think this is going to be our strategy for attempting to lose weight. And if, if you are one of the people who likes classes and is in this and you like going to Weight Watchers and you can keep going for five years and you've got a good friend, then great, it's a great thing to do. But as a health service, is this what we should be spending our money on? Commissioning? I think this is deeply, and this is about thinking about these flow, who does this research apply to? Um, five, I'm not going to much about this, but I did touch on this when I was at HDA, and John Brass is going to teach talk about this on Thursday. There's a current need to develop a rapid but also robust evidence base. We need much more efficient, quicker information. And when we decide that that information is important, we then need to think about doing a robust job. The problem is, as you've seen today, is if I go to PubMed, and you might be wrong here, but the last time I checked it, it was 24 million articles and climbing. And it's almost exponential. PubMed counts for about 45% of the day's publications out there. So the number's 50 million plus, of which will bottom out at about 50,000 clinical trials in about three or four years' time. It's massive, the explosion in evidence base. And how do we get to efficiently what we want to know is a real problem. This you guys say. Um, and this probably fits with the Weight Watchers. Here's my two important questions for any intervention. Down here is the critical appraisal that you're all going to learn. Down here. Yeah? But my two is the top. If you take a question there, my two important questions are, who does this apply to and does it make a difference? And if you can't answer 
uh, yeah, it applies to the people I see, and it does make a difference. Why move on? Why even bother doing any appraisal analysis? And I've been thinking about this, and I might write this, that actually the real way we do it is the other way around. You tend to ask a question and do the appraisal and say, is it a high-quality evidence? And then at the end of it, run out of steam and go, oh, who does it apply to? But actually, if you do it sometimes the other way around, what you find is, does it make a difference? There are all these other issues like surrogates, composite endpoints, endpoints that don't mean anything, six to eight-week studies. Yep, not long enough to even sufficiently say this is a useful endpoint. And when you do it that way, the problem I'm coming to and the way I'm thinking of this is we've got this mantra of cost-effectiveness is what it's all about. And people are un not understanding that actually, where's the clinical effect? What does it mean? So anytime you look at an intervention, you should be able to say, what is the actual benefit here? And when you do something like that in Tamiflu, you actually start to see then actually, if you answer that question and anybody goes to me, well, there is benefit. So I say, well, okay, just imagine you are a GP and you're going to say to somebody, inform them, give them an informed decision. What would you say about the benefits? What would you say are the harms? And who does it apply to? And when you do that, it breaks down. The arguments break down. Seven. Um, and then seven is this interesting issue, is that there's a real problem supporting our regulatory bodies. And this is just one example. This is an example of a drug called rivaroxaban for acute coronary syndrome that came up at the FDA. And this chap, Thomas Marciniak, is a real skeptic and does a really good job. But he said, we're in deep trouble. He said the endpoint is about one to one and a half percent difference in the endpoint rates between rivaroxaban and placebo. However, about 12% of the patients had incomplete follow-up. And we always say, well, actually, if the loss of follow-up exceeds the endpoint, you've got a problem, haven't you? You're back at the, the Vioxx argument that you could have this intent, what's happening to them patients. And when he did a simple plot of the year to the patients with missing data, this is what it's starting to look like over the last 10, 12 years. In fact, what should be happening, this should be going this way because the endpoints are smaller here. The difference is smaller, so your trials need to be larger, but they need to maximise following up patients because it's really important what goes on in these studies. And we're really interested in that stuff because this does make a difference to how you interpret the endpoint. If we use this treatment, we could be right back at where we are with Vioxx because what are these 12% of patients telling us? So, coming back to where you are and what you might think about, these are the three ways when I think about anybody who works with us. Contribute to the development of the evidence base. Contribute to the methods of EBM. And contribute to the teaching, dissemination and communication of EBM. And they're the three aspects. So anybody who works with us, I'm always pushing them a bit to say, well, where are you? So we, we do lots of here. So this is, it could be the evidence base in terms of doing systematic reviews. Could be in doing primary studies. Could be in implementation studies in practice. So that's one aspect. They're interesting. They will make a difference in some remit, but there are these other two areas. Contribute to the methods of EBM. I told you that the first ever trial of aspirin was only 40 years. There's some assumption we know what we're doing yet. We're only into there, into some of these issues. There's lots to be learned and thought about. There are so many areas you can look at. It's almost, it's, it's almost exponential, but you should be thinking, oh, I'm really interested in losses to follow up. 
Jeff's really interested in adverse events. Jeff, have we got a <laughs> sensible system for measuring adverse events, would you say, yet? No. Annette's really interested in diagnostics. Would you know, do you think we've got a sensible way of assessing diagnostics in primary care? No. So that's our contribution. But then the third is contribute to the teaching, dissemination, communication of EBM. There, that's what I'm doing now, aren't I? I'm communicating. I'm trying to disseminate some way of teaching. That's why we run teaching courses. Um, this year we had a meeting in summer. We're going to start teaching EBM to schools. It's, by the time you're out of school, it's all too late. And I can't believe that. And in fact, schools are starting to do a good job, actually. They are talking about drug development and clinical trials is on the curriculum. So it's already in there. So we're going to work with schools a bit because we think that'll be interesting dissemination and communication. There are many ways. And I just finish. And so you can think about them. Here's, here's a group that I did. And so thinking about communication and dissemination, you can participate in all sorts of ways. This is a group of people who came to a three-day workshop, practice workshop for three days. And at day two, we looked at a systematic uh, a paper that was published in the BMJ about the association of white rice and type 2 diabetes. And this group was so infuriated by how crap that paper was that they said, we have to do something about this. So I said, well, why don't you get together and write a letter to the BMJ? And when you write it, see, let's read it. So we, in the mini appraisal that we did, it was like you're going to do tomorrow. They spent 90 minutes, they appraised the paper, and they said, look at all these problems. So well, why don't you go and write it up? So they got together, wrote it up, and communicated it. There's me at the end, at the end, um, and sent it to BMJ, and it got published. They're communicating, they're participating. So if you develop these skills, you certainly should be using these skills in some way. You shouldn't just put them in the closet. That annoys me in a way, because I think if you've got something that you think to say in healthcare, and you've seen something, a signal, you should participate. Nobody's going to tear your head off, because if you stick to your evidence and not your opinion, stick to the evidence, this is what the evidence is saying, you'll be all right. Here's another, and we put all these, and I just put, here's a list, if you go to the CBM, you can put all the projects, and here's just us, in all sorts of different ways, this is a meeting that led to a publication about real versus rubbish EBM. This is a load of people who are challenging us to think differently, and some people are saying, Trish Greenall is saying, look, there are loads of problems with the evidence base, and some of it's rubbish, and some of it, and Jeremy's going, this is real EBM, this is what the difference is. And they published an article in the BMJ a couple of months ago. That was the biggest downloaded paper they've had this year. Because they were just saying, look, let's participate in thinking ideas. There's no space where you can't contribute. I, I could spend hours talking about all the different ways you can contribute to different projects. Have a look at the website, some of the different stuff we do. And I wanted to finish, and I, maybe this is a good point to finish. Um, so out of this, again, a contribution, what did we do? Um, out of the Tamiflu story, I was contacted by a couple of people. Uh, one was Ben Goldacre, and the other was Fiona Godley at the BMJ. And what happened is, um, they said, oh, there's an MP in, and I was amazed that people actually do this. They actually really put their neck out, and Ben Goldacre put his neck out and went, there's an MP called Sarah Wollaston, who is prepared to talk to us about this issue because she'd read about the Tamiflu and they couldn't believe it. Could you come down to London and talk to us about all this publication? So we went down to London and basically out of that was born an initiative called All Trials. Um, in, and what's been interesting and working with people like this, there's a centre, the Centre About Science, BMJ, there's Ben Goldacre, James Lynn Library, is most of the 
great projects that I'm involved in never have a single penny of funding at all. And all the stuff we get involved in often, the question or the clinical issue is compelling because you've skilled yourself in some of these issues in evidence-based medicine. And often you don't need lots of funding to go and dig around, be involved. Um, 520 organisations, 80,000 people have signed this position. If you haven't signed it, could you go to all trials? Because that's me telling you to sign it. That'll be another 20 people, hopefully. And it's a classic example of using the skills of EBM. And what we're trying to do is solve the problem that half of the clinical trials are never published or have not been published, which prevents massive problems if we can understand the benefits and harms of treatment. And that's a good example of how you might contribute or get involved. Thank you very much. Does anybody want a couple of questions or are you all... Yeah, correct. Totally correct. Um, in fact, what happened is we ended up, started with involving the BMJ, then started involving the media, and um, actually got Channel 4 involved, and they did a TV program. <coughs> then we had this ridiculous where we'd write these emails to people like Roche and copy in 50 different media people, and they're all available. If you go on the, then we got to the position where we just kept ramping it and ramping it up, and they put, if you go on there, there's a BMJ open data campaign. If you look at it, you can, if you're a real nerd, you can see all the emails are published. We even published all the emails and said, look, we're going to publish all this because you keep saying you're going to give it us and then you don't. And that was about an 18-month um, movement. And probably the bit that made a difference was two things. The publication of Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Pharma, had a, a slight shift in, it just resonated in some way. And what it did really well was communicate so we, I like to think I do all the work, but not me, but there's, I know all the people who do all the work in this area. What he did is really communicate it to the pub, wider public really well. And that's what was exceptional. And then the old trials came. And about four months after all trials, Roche, GSK made a commitment and said, we're going to make this stuff available, and they signed all trials. And then it looked a bit odd because Roche were on the other side going, well, we're not giving it you. And then about three months in, they committed. And... and well, they sent us everything. On a, he talks about privacy and all this, and I was like, and we had a discussion, and they just posted me the CDs in, the, in, the, in, in a package to the department. I was like, this is ridiculous. After all this privacy and all these issues, you just sent me it in the mail. <laughs> and I was just, so I've got all, these, all this data we've now got. It constituted uh, for Tamiflu over 150,000 pages of data compared to about 12 pages that have been published in The Lancet and JAMA up to that point. So that about half the trials are not published. What are the excuses they have for not publishing trials? Um, well, it's allowed. If you, it's allowed, it's permitted, so you can get away with it. I mean, look, let's be clear. You have a drug, you're selling a drug, you have a science department and a marketing department. A marketing department saying we've got three, $4 billion of sales, and you're like, yeah, but I'm sat on half these trials which we want to publish. That show is no effect. That's publication bias. Why would you then incentivize everybody to make that available if there's no regulations or laws that make you have to do that? Um, the FDA in 2007 brought in a FDA regulation that says for all drug trials who've come through FDA regulation, you're supposed to publish a summary of results within one year of the trial closing. 
And people continually audit that and say nobody does it, and not a single person has yet been fined. So, so there's no regulation, basically. That's there's no regulation, and that's part of. And last two weeks ago, the European Medicines Agency ruled that all, as of 2016 in January, any drug that comes to them, they are going to make the full clinical study report fully available on their website. That's a start. Um, we do, I mean, simple projects. I'm involved. I was with Alice Thompson in our department. At the moment, we're auditing the University of Oxford BRCs and BRUs and saying, because why? A patient asked us to do it. The patient representative said, I've looked at all trials and I'm really interested. I'm on the board of the BRC and I'd quite like to know whether they're publishing their trials or not. And we went, thank you very much. Can't get the clinicians to say it. They all now have to do it. It's been fantastic. We've now identified they've got 115 trials. We're going to audit them. Anybody can do that. Just takes time, doesn't it? But it's been great that a patient came because they forced the issue, whereas everybody else is, mm, we don't quite don't want you to know what's going on, to be honest. It's in the public good, isn't it, to make this stuff available? It's not there yet. One last one. And then I'll let you go for a drink. You think with the older drugs, you know, where all the practice is based actually in very little evidence, that there'll be a move to, to release the older well, they should be, because the aspirin's a very sobering story, because the aspirin, if you make the individual data available, which had been made available, is if you go beyond 2009, what happened is there's a chap here called Peter Rothwell, who's a neurologist, who saw that individual data and was looking at it and said, well, they've missed something here, actually. And what they'd missed is the fact that aspirin might have a massive role in the prevention of cancer, particularly metastases. And if aspirin came along now, they'd probably be looking at it in cancer and not in heart attacks. And that actually, it may be a really important drug in prolonging life in lots of cancers. And that was because the data was made available. So there's probably lots of drugs out there that people could start to look at. And we've discussed one, antibiotics is one, indications. We're running out of antibiotics. Well, if you made all the data available, you might say, well, we've re-looked at some of these antibiotics. Actually, some of these may be useful over here. So, in fact, even from a beneficial point of view, we have to do it. More so than the harms in some ways. And if we don't do it, yeah, um, my concern is we could spend 20 years here and actually clinical medicine has bottomed out. And actually could start going the other way. We'll get actually reduce, increase morbidity, reduce, in, reduce morbidity, life expectancy will shorten. We're getting fatter, we exercise less. Our children may not live as long as the people in this room. And then the great thing is, though, like the Weight Watchers, perfect, you could have a drug. And, the, and, and I, when we had a few weeks ago the overdiagnosis conference, something else we got involved in, interesting. The idea, overdiagnosis, that actually you can find a disease and diagnose as a disease and diagnose more people with the disease, but have no effect whatsoever on the mortality or the morbidity is really interesting. And there are loads of d diseases appearing like that, pre-diabetes, which is superb for if you're in the, the manufacturing pharmaceutical remit. So, yeah, um, that's next on the agenda that we said is part of the fight is to say, right, you've made everything from 216 available. We now need to go back so that many of you people could start to say, I'm interested in X, I might look at this. And then we need lots more people who are prepared to do the work. Okay? All right, that's seven o'clock. You can have a drink. Thank you very much. <laughs>